The following is a breakout session from the 2014 Acts 29 conference in Dallas. Given the interactive nature of breakouts and Q&A, there may be extended periods of silence. All right, everyone. As everyone begins to settle in, and uh, we'll still have some uh, stragglers coming in here over the next few minutes. That's all right. Um, we're getting ready to part do part two, more of the pragmatic or practical side uh, of uh, finances and being a healthy church uh, in regards to finances. Um, just a quick story from my own life, just to uh, give you a heads up as far as how we planned in the pr- prior stage to uh, planting our church. Um, we were extremely frugal and extremely careful with our spending for years, living way under our means. We didn't Actually, as Adam said, we hadn't thought too clearly about what our plan was in regards to that. Um, In that respect, we probably were not wise money managers. Um, We were kind of aimlessly saving. Um, And so there was that. But once it became clear to plant a church, um, we felt like God in his providence was good to us and already had a plan that we were not yet aware of. And um, we had a pretty... pretty good pile, and then we were able to turn our house uh, for a pretty good profit, um, which we had sunk a lot of money into it. And I tell you all that um, to tell you I'm nine years into it, and we have never, never come close to recovering ourselves in terms of having any kind of just outside of retirement, having any kind of significant savings. Um, It all went away every dime of it. I mean, every dime of it. And I say that to say I'm not sure what I would have done going in with extreme debt. And um, some of you may be in that situation. I would just encourage you, while it's not a, um, it's not a dead end, it is not a, um, an ender to our conversation about you maybe planting a church but you are probably in a real precarious position if you believe that you can go in with that into a church plant and it not affect the way you do ministry. It is amazing the compromise you will engage yourself in when your money is so desperately needed to pay creditors. It's amazing how quickly you will compromise I've seen it time and again with friends who have gone in with less than good financial situation. And so, uh, anyway, I'll tell you that, to tell you we were in a really good spot, and we still saw it all go away. And I say that all saying we were supported by the Village Church. So it's not like we didn't have a church behind us that was actually giving us very generous amounts of money. It is that expensive sometimes, depending on your context. So... Um, anyway, knowing and taking in some of the lessons you're hearing from the theological underpinnings that Adam gave you to what we're going to be talking about during this session are critical. I hope you listen in. I hope you take notes. I hope you uh, find ways to live this out. Uh, I want to introduce to you Tom Moriello. Uh, Tom is uh, executive director with GCM. If you don't know about GCM, they actually have a, a setup in the lobby. Uh, they're a fantastic organization. have mad respect for them. Uh, they are ninjas at, at uh, helping you fundraise, right. and um, you would do well to get to know a little bit about them and actually to, uh, I'll tell you this, Tom, I've told guys it is worth delaying their church plant if only to get to one of your all's, um, was it 10-day? Uh, yeah, eight-day. Eight-day intensives in Florida in January, February, somewhere in that range. Uh, guys who want to plant, say, in the fall, I said, you ought to plant next fall because you need to get to that because you are starting with far fewer funds than you probably could start off with if you just take eight days of your life and go to that and spend the money that, that's mm-hmm. well invested. So anyway, yeah. we, we're, we're big fans of you guys, and uh, we hope that over time we're going to be sending all of our church planters to you guys during those eight days. So awesome. thanks, Tom. Thank you. Thanks so much. It, uh, I appreciate the, the kind words. I'm Tom Moriello, so I'm the executive director of Great Commission Ministries. Um, we are not going to do just fundraising. So I realize GCM, we're a mission agency. We train people to raise funds. I think God's brought together an amazing team of men and women, and so we've been successful with it. 
Um, we're happy to talk about it, but that's not going to be the entirety of this morning. Um, I'm also, just a little bit about me, I was a church treasurer in Michigan at a, a pretty decent-sized church, so I have a background with church administration as well. I'm also uh, in the elder process with Cross Point Ch Church in Orlando and Acts 29 Church. So this to us and me personally is very real. It's something I'm very excited about, so I'm Italian, and I'm excited about fundraising, and I'm excited about church systems. And they said we should hit this practical stuff at noon on the second day. And that is like the ideal time. You're hungry, you're tired, you didn't get enough sleep, and we're going to talk practical church systems with church planners. They love it. So stick with me. You'll be able to eat at the end. Um, we are also going to try and make sure we have time for questions. I realize everyone's situation is a little bit different. So there's a lot of common threads in church planting in setting up a church, in fundraising, but there's also uniquenesses in every situation. So we'll take time for questions, but to really dive into details, we could talk up at the booth or sit down somewhere or even uh, email or phone. Um, if uh, my email is up on the screen, I can give it to you. If you want a copy of the slides, just shoot me an email and I'll send it to you. I uh, apologize, I didn't have them finished in time for you to have, have it here, but if you want them, if it's helpful to you, I'd be happy to email it. And man, coming off that first session, so for me, when we start to think about practical things and what does it take to raise funds, what does it take to manage the funds of a church and have systems, it flowing out of what we just went through, am I a steward or an owner, is the foundation. So there is nothing that we'll do in fundraising or church systems or our finances that if if we don't really embrace what we were just learning and hearing about, it's all going to be for naught, and it's all going to kind of fall to the side. Thought I'd start with a verse. Oh, I got my thing here. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This is all his. And if we start with that premise that we are not the owners, that he is the owners, it's going to influence all the decisions we make. It's gonna, I really appreciate Rick sharing about debt and their position before coming into church planting. Um, if that's where you're in, has that come from a place where you have said, this is the Lord's, or has it been problems or challenges or mismanagement and something that has to be dealt with? When we talk about fundraising, is it about giving to me, or is it about the Lord's resources going to his mission? And we're managing a church is about his resources being stewarded or is about what's ours. Uh, a great um, a, a definition of stewardship I found, stewardship is managing everything God brings into the believer's life in a manner that honors God and impacts eternity. That was off Wikipedia, seriously. Um, managing everything God brings into the believer's life in a manner that honors God and impacts eternity. So this is important, this is critical. This is such a common area where church plants fail, where churches struggle, where missteps happen, that we wanna get on top of it. So what we'll look at today is really two halves. We're gonna talk a little about fundraising. We're talking about funding, how we fund the mission, and then what do we do once we've funded the mission, once the church is planted, but how can you think about it now? How can you think about it before the church has started? Part of the reason, oh, sorry, I forgot to put that one up. Part of the reason thinking about this now is so important is fundraising takes time. So fundraising takes time. It is very common that we'll meet someone and they'll say, I'm, I need to think about fundraising now. I'm planting a church, so um, let's talk about it. And we'll say, okay, when are you planting the church? They'll be like, in two weeks. So knowing that Rick is saying, hey, you need to delay that, you need to think about this now for a church plant that is nine months to a year off or more is critical to success. And the reason we're kind of passionate about fundraising is we really believe this, that sufficient funding is critical to long-term success in ministry. This isn't about getting rich. So hearing that language doesn't mean this isn't about a better job greater uh, financial self-sufficiency, greater savings, but if you have insufficient funding, the mission is gonna fail. So it's critical, it is critical that there's sufficient funding. Um, 
I get uh, the opportunity to travel a little bit, and so I know many of you probably flew here. We all fly. It's, it's a joy. It's glamorous. But they always do the briefing, right? So you get on the plane, and they're going to go through the safety briefing, and they tell you, should the oxygen masks fall, help the children and people around you before putting your own on. So as I said, I'm an Italian. Um, I have a really cute 10-year-old daughter, big blue eyes, and she likes flying, so that's great. It's great to have a kid who likes getting on a plane and flying, and um, uh, uh, it feels good. But I can't imagine being on a plane, something so bad has happened that the oxygen masks come down. So what has happened that requires an oxygen mask to come down? And my first thought is not give my daughter oxygen, but to put a mask on myself first. That she could be choking, that oxygen could be leaving the plane, and my instinct is, oh, I'd better make sure I'm okay instead of her. That goes against every fiber in my being. For the church planter, the concept of our basic needs can press against our heart for the kingdom. And that's a good desire to reach the lost, to transform our communities. But what we learn about that is that that's the wrong response. That the 30 seconds it might take for me to put my own oxygen mask on, in that situation, a very short amount of time, she'll be okay. Barring something much worse, she's gonna be okay. But if I wait 30 seconds to a minute, she can't help me, and then I'm not gonna be able to help her. And she can't care for herself in that situation. And so that extra six months, that extra year before planting a church to make sure you have sufficient funding, and we, we use that word, sufficient, this isn't excess, is the difference between being able to make it and to stay on mission with those you're called to compared to yourself passing out, and they can't help you either. So we're passionate about this. We want to see people be fully funded, that they have enough. Uh, this is not a time where it's, you're going to be getting rich, for sure, but we want to make sure it's sufficient funding. The other thing that this does is this avoids chasing the tithe. Again, Rick, I should just, you know, just replay that two minutes and you'll be in great shape. We've all met people, if you've been in ministry long enough, of they've had to move off mission. We've had to move to a nicer part of town. We said we weren't going to be driven by programs and now we've had to do programs for the middle class families because they're the tithers. I know a church, I was proud of them, and I wish it would had a happier ending. They had someone come to them. They were in a building project, and I think it was a multi-hundred thousand dollar donation. They said, well, a multi-hundred thousand dollar gift, but we need you to do a few things in how you run the church. They said no. And I wish the end of the story was they said no, and out of conviction that donor, God worked in their lives, and they gave the money anyway, but they didn't. They actually said, we, we can't do this. We have to stay on mission. And so through fundraising, through having sufficient funding, you can make the decisions that keep you on track. Um, also, I will say, I realize, you know, we'll talk a little about in some of this with fundraising. Not everyone needs it. There are a lot of churches, uh, probably less than it seems, that they're coming out of a large church or a denomination and fully funds it or it just ramps up quickly and they have a large starting group, but fundraising is very common. So if this isn't for you, you can doodle or make notes to help someone else, but it's very common. I know there was a question in the beginning about, well, what about other sources of income, starting a business? Our experience has been this, that if you are someone who has um, an existing trade or business or job that allows the flexibility to reduce itself, so I do consulting, or I make web pages, or I do something. That can work in a bivocational way. So, hey, I can make a lot per hour doing this thing and let it reduce as my funding or my system goes up. It's very, very hard to start a business to fund a church plant. Some statistics would say it's harder to start a business than to plant a church. So some Harvard studies say most businesses, it's only 40% of businesses that survive, and Ed Stetzer had one of, uh, I think, 65 to 80% of churches can make it three years. So to start a coffee shop, to generate hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund a church plant will require all of your time or energy and is not guaranteed to be successful. It may be, there are stories of that, but if that was easy and successful and didn't require all of your time and attention, everyone would do it. 
So when you think about what it takes to start a business that has excess revenue and gives you the time to plant a church, uh, it, it's, it's pretty rare. Which, but that is different than, again, I have something, I do something, I do graphic design, I do consulting, I do fitness training. There's something I do already that can continue to be a source of income as my time and attention rises with the church plant. So that's why we come back to fundraising, because we have found a success rate way above secondary income sources. So we believe with uh, following the right path, following God's calling in your life, you can be successful with raising enough to support planting a church. Some, it's, it's probably l much more rare that starting a secondary income is going to fund a church plant. We can get more of that later, but I just thought, I know that question was up before, if uh, there's specifics on it. All right, so on fundraising, want to add another element to this. Um, first, Tim, why we, we, we believe this is important. First Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So even though we've said this isn't a time that you're going to be getting wealthy, there is nothing worse than planting a church and having, as a family, to say we can't afford groceries that you will literally muzzle the ox, that you will literally stumble and fall as a family because there just isn't enough. We don't have health insurance and our kids are sick. That is not a funding mechanism. Uh, we want to make sure you're able to do the work God's called you to. I do want to talk a little bit about the missionary model. So our approach to fundraising and probably the classic approach now um, is the phrase you need to raise your support. So this is used uh, internships. I was talking uh, with a guy about an internship. Hey, you can maybe do this, but you would need to raise your support. Or you need to plant a church. We have a few thousand a month for you, but you need to raise the rest. What we're talking about is the missionary model. Uh, the, the approach is dozens of individual donors giving $50 to $100 a month. And then in addition to that, there might be some special gifts or some church support. We love this model. Let me see. Um, because it's incredibly stable. We encourage everyone to think monthly. So not to think, I need $60,000 in the first year of a church plant. Because I need, you know, 48000 in pay and 12000 in benefits, just to throw some numbers out. Um, so I need 60000 in the first year. You should think 5000 a month. So we've worked with people who they raised the 60000 the church just had not grown to a place where it was going to replace it on its own, and they were now at zero. So they had nothing left. When you raise monthly support, those donations, donors will come and go, supporters will come and go, but the donations keep going in perpetuity. So you're thinking more like a monthly budget. What is the monthly salary? What's the monthly benefits we need? What's all of our various sources? There Maybe there is some local tithe already, uh, some supporting churches, some mission agency, and then what do I have to raise? And you're asking for people to come along this journey with you for anywhere from $25 to $250. Typical donor gives $50 to $100. Would you consider giving $75 a month? The numbers multiply really quickly. To think about having 50 donors, uh, if you averaged 100 a month, 50 is not a massive number to get your head around. That's $5,000 a month. If you can get 50 people that will be a part of this at $100 each. Um, we've also found this, you know, uh, the economic collapse in 2008, from a financial statement point of view, it didn't affect us. There were, of course, individual missionaries where some of their supporters lost their jobs um, or situations like that happened, but on the whole, it had very little effect on the missionary model of fundraising. So all these foundations were shutting down. Uh, schools and museums had no funding because it was all major donors, people giving stock gifts that were now worth less than when they had bought it. And the missionary model just chugged along. Because unless someone had lost that job, their ability to stay with you for $50, $75 a month stayed with them. And they wanted to be with you. We talked to a number of donors. The last thing they wanted to cut was supporting people. Not out of guilt, but because they were passionate about it. People saying, I'd rather cancel cable than not support this person that's planting a church, going on the mission field, going overseas, um, whatever the, they were doing. It does allow a focus on ministry. As I said, there's a lot of places where bivocational works really well and it fits. 
but bivocational can become trivocational. It becomes quadvocational. So I have a family, I have my job, I have a side job, I'm planting a church, and you're trying to manage all of those things, and your time and attention gets separated. So by raising support, you can focus on ministry. Um, the one thing we will say is it takes time. It takes time, work, and attention. So think ahead. If you are planning a fall launch, you should be ready to start fundraising at the latest by the January or February before that, and it might even take longer than that. Anywhere from six months to a year should be fundraising, planning, setting the stages of uh, what the financial picture is going to be, as opposed to I'm going to take a month or two, or I'm going to take the summer to raise funds and then plant at the end of two or three months. It's going to take time. I do want to give you whether, now, uh, as we said, we do a long training. So we do an eight-day training. We are not going to cover all of that right now. I'd have to talk even faster. But to give you the basics, and this transfers, so even if you're not doing this model, you're dealing with some larger donors, kind of the five basic steps. One, meet in person. Meet in person. We are very young, average age is young. Raising these, these kinds of funds through Facebook still doesn't really work. You give permission to, for people to kind of quelch the Holy Spirit in their life to support you for $5. Oh, look, I helped. I hit a give button, and it was $5. Uh, a letter-writing campaign for a long-term goal and a large goal is usually not sufficient. So the primary way is you meet in person. You meet face-to-face. -face, you talk with them. You pray with them. You communicate a vision and a need. So people want to give to people with a purpose. So there's a vision, there's a hope, and there's a real need. There's a reason why we're doing this. In our circles, we get it. We get church planting. It's surprising how many people, even in evangelical churches, assume every church has a big tithe and a big bucket of money, and they don't think of church planter as missionary. We love that language in Acts 29. Church planter is missionary, so a need and a vision. Uh, we, you need to ask clearly. So if, this, if we had to pick out one bullet point for how to raise funds, you have to ask clearly. There are people who like the communicate a vision and a need and then kind of sit there and look hungry. Oh, man, boy, we could use funds. Woo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could. Oh, yeah, there's a huge need. Pause. You have to ask. You have to ask. Uh, the most common answer is going to be maybe. Just get ready for it. The most common answer is maybe. You will get some yes right away. Will you get some no right away? The most common answer is maybe. Um, practically, you need to follow up with it. So something else that we go through significantly is your work ethic in following up with people. If you are passionate and creative, um, but calendars and scheduling things on your phone is foreign to you, it's a skill you need to get on top of. The most common answer is going to be maybe, and so your response is because it's true. So you're going to meet with someone, they're going to say, I need to go talk with my spouse. We need to think about this. I need to look at my finances if I can support you. The answer is great. When can we follow up? Does next week work? Yes. Great. Next week, does Thursday work? What about Thursday evening? Yes, it does. Can I call you Thursday at 7? Well, that doesn't work. What about Thursday at 8? Great. I'll call you Thursday at 8. Can I call your mobile number? Sure. Then, if only someone had a device, you would go in and, great, I will call you Thursday at 8. And you put it in your calendar. And you actually call them up. The most common response we have is someone says, maybe we assume they're lying and they're uncomfortable and they don't want to give. And we say, sure, I'll call you. And then, you know, we walk away and go, oh, man, and you never call them back. Um, had a situation in my own family. I have a niece um, who was going on a missions trip. I'm in the missions world. We love, support big family, biggest surprising, big Italian family. We love supporting them. Sent us a letter. I lost it in a stack of paper somewhere, and there no, was no follow-up. Like, after the mission strip, or I saw on Facebook, she's, you know, overseas. I'm like, oh, we never supported her. She never followed up. It, was, it really wasn't that we didn't. We had not gotten back uh, intentionally. I lost it. I just needed someone to shoot me an email or call me up. Hey, Uncle Tom, I had sent you a letter. What did you think about this? Oh, you're right. Can you shoot me a link? Can I, you know, do it now? I just forgot. When people say maybe, they mean maybe. When they say, please get back, Please get back. The discipline in that is critical. Um, 
The next step in that is to make new connections. So a very common concern with fundraising is I don't know enough people. Now, Facebook has helped us with that lie. So we used to say, if you know, do you know 50 to 100 people you can talk to? People go, oh, I don't know, maybe only 25 or 30. Great, how many friends do you have on Facebook? 897. So you know more than 25 people. Um, but usually, the biggest stumbling block, one of the top three reasons people don't succeed in fundraising is they run out of people to talk to. So a big part of being successful is to try and make new connections. Hey, if whether they supported you or not, do you know someone that this resonates with their heart? That this city, this people group, this mission resonates with them that you think I could talk to about being a part of this team? And trying to build new connections and meet new people to see who is it God has lined up to serve um, in planting a church. We have a number of people that every one of their supporters, they didn't know when they started. That's probably at the extreme case, but it is very common that you would end up raising support from people you don't know today. So it's asking people, will they give? And then if not, do they know people who would be excited about this mission or purpose and getting connected with them to start back at the beginning, to meet in person with them, in person, communicate a vision and need. Um, lastly, thank and invest. Thank and invest. It's unfortunate we've had donors contact us and say, hey, is you know, so-and-so person still in ministry? We haven't heard from them in a year. Right? So by the way, on the stability point, donor kept giving for 12 months, every single month, even though like, they weren't even getting a thank you card or a response or an update. Um, thank people is, is our heart. So what we just talked about, do we own it? Do we deserve this? This was ours. Or do we understand stewardship? And this moves us to gratefulness and thankfulness and humbleness. Um, we want to be careful. It's important to invest back in people's lives. So scripture says where your treasure is, your heart is also. So think about this with this model of 50 donors supporting you. 50 people every month are putting their heart into what you're doing and into your mission every single month. So this isn't about saying, hey, we have a few rich donors or a few wealthy people, so now they get our time and attention and they've become our friends. What it is saying is every single person, every man, woman, and child that is helping support us is putting their heart with me and I can respond and serve with that. And we don't know that family that's supporting me, maybe they're going through serious marital trouble. And right now, I need their financial support, but they need me to come and minister in their life. Maybe one of their kids is struggling, and I can step in. And it isn't based on how much they give, but it's based on the fact that they're coming alongside you, and you can minister back to them in their lives, because they're giving sacrificially to be a part of what you're doing. A couple other uh, uh, practical pieces as you're looking ahead to fundraising. Um, personal financial preparedness. So if you were coming through GCM, we ask, where's your bills at? What do you need to live on? We believe passionately, we don't want to muzzle the ox, but day one, it's tough. There are no donors yet. There is nothing coming in yet. If what you need to live on because of uh, just your lifestyle, your house, your current bills, savings is too high, it will either uh, permanently or significantly affect your ability to plant a church or to be successful in ministry. So it's getting, getting that in order, whether that's savings, uh, debt being reduced, what does it mean to live? Um, and we want that balance. We don't want the no insurance ramen noodle budget, right? We want you to care for yourself and your family, but we want that to be in a healthy place because fundraising is gonna be hard. A second, get assistance. Um, you will meet someone along the way who's like, I had no training and I raised 8,000 a month in, 20, in you know, four weeks and it was easy and off you go. Um, those are unusual circumstances. And so find the person that struggled for nine to 12 months or longer and either what helped them or who helped them. But get help. There are people that are good at this that have learned the lessons along the way. This is why um, when we do trainings, we're, our trainers are actively living in a support-based model because we want that expertise and that history uh, to come through. But get assistance, get help. Uh, the other thing, do it legally. So try to not break the law. Um, 
It's, you need, when people are going to support you, they need to give to an entity, to a church, or to a mission agency. I realize I am biased in this. There's a lot of experts that you talk to that will say, be careful about doing it to a church. So we will get into church setup. The IRS is expecting a church to be a church and a mission agency to be a mission agency. So nonprofit organizations are designed to do something and they are not supposed to do other things. So this is where you see churches or other nonprofits get in trouble because they just, hey, I'm created, I'm tax exempt, government's not gonna tread on me so I can do anything. And what you realize is no, there's reasons why you're organized and there's rules and there's expectations behind how you raise funds in a support-based way. So part of the reason we do what we do is because we, we believe it's better off of the church. There are churches that do it and do it successfully, um, or the problems that come up are not insurmountable, but you want to do it right. If you are doing this through your church plant, we'll hit some of the legal setup. Um, there are IRS guidelines. They actually address this. They address fundraising. They address personal fundraising. Uh, the memos are long, but they, they do address it. The answer is out there. And one of the biggest issues is control of funds. So if your parent church, sending church, place you're coming from is like, ah, sure, we'll let you raise it with us. It's the wrong answer. Um, it is expected that if a donation receipt is being given out, control of funds is being exerted. Imagine you have a friend or you know someone who owns their own business. So they've just got their own, they've got the coffee shop, they have their own little retail business, and you're like, hey, I need to move some money around. Can I just swipe some stuff through your credit card reader? Right, that's like mind-boggling. Like no business owner, your best friend would be like, you're crazy. No, you can't just like, use my credit card reader. Like, I gotta pay sales taxes and there's rules, like, I, I can't do that. But it is not uncommon to meet a church that says, well, sure, we'll put a little thing on our website with a drop down and you can just raise money through us and then we'll just give you the money. That's, that's not the way to do it. It's gonna get everybody in trouble. So try and do it right. There are tax and employment implications to this because we're talking about funding, we're talking about pay. This is employment, this is compensation. This isn't raising money so one person is just giving it to you. This is about how you end up employed. So there's a lot of details with that. Um, for the sake of time, I'll keep rolling on it. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot to advance it. All right. Oh, sorry. So this point, our personal preparedness, getting help, the IRS does address it. There are things you are supposed to do and not supposed to do. This has tax and employment implications. They're very specific. Um, I realize I'm in a church world. I work with a lot of people. I know a lot of people that have paid some significant penalties with their tax returns. If you're around the church world long enough, you will encounter it. Um, it, it happens probably more often than you realize. All right, let's hit some church stuff. Um, this, I love this verse in 2 Corinthians when you're thinking about what is it going to look like to set up a church and to put it into place. 2 Corinthians 8, 21. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So this is not just about, well, what, what is my conviction or what do I think I should do? Um, this is not typically the place to like have a protest, like I disagree with the IRS and so I'm going to you know, be a conscientious objector to their rules. You're, you're planting a church. We want to do what's honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. What happens when the newspaper articles start cropping up about the controversy at the church and the reputation is lost in the community? It happens too often. This is where I loved uh, the language before. You are not planting something that you would call your church. You're planting, you could say, a church, his church, the church. This is not your church. This is not your ministry. This is his. And so if we don't embrace stewardship first versus ownership, everything's going to start to have trouble. Ironically, with that, the IRS assumes a stewardship model. 
this is hard. So it, it's, uh, they actually are expecting you have a board, that you have rules, that you have outside influence that isn't just yours, that it isn't like a sole proprietorship, that it isn't like I started my own business. This is tough because we test, we think about entrepreneurialism in starting a ministry or planting a church, but this isn't the same thing. This is like starting something that isn't for you. It's something you're going to work at and lead and be a part of, but you're starting something that's you need to leave in God's hands. You're stewarding a church. It's not your church. What this means is uh, some of the practical things you need to start thinking about. So starting a church is not as simple as just a home group in a living room. It, it can start that way, but that isn't when you're really getting into the nitty-gritty. That's just people meeting. Um, every state has a process for actually forming the legal entity of the church. Every state has a process. You do not technically have to have an IRS-approved 501c3 in states to gather as a church and to collect a tithe. Now, on the fundraising point, um, it gets into the details, but if you're raising funds from outside of your state and you don't have a 501c3, those are probably not tax-deductible and you're getting into interstate commerce law. So that's one of the big reasons churches that have people raising support, the state is assuming you're collecting a local tithe from people within your community and your state. When you're raising support, states actually have rules on if you solicit people in their state X number of times, you need to register. Now, is a state, I know a lot of our churches, we go on missions trips and send letters. They're not going to prosecute for that but significant financial activity, you're regularly sending solicitations into neighboring states or across the country, there's standards on those. They want you to be registered. They want you to have your documents in order. They want to make sure this isn't a scam. Those systems are set up to protect people. Um, so uh, 501c3 is the IRS level. That's the federal level of certification. Um, it's, it is a good thing to get either eventually or to start right away, but to be clear, there's a difference between your state and your 501c3. The states are going to require bylaws and articles of incorporation. So these become documenting the rules of the church. These become your operating procedures. This is where you start to really recognize this, um, I don't own it. So they're expecting you to say, we have determined there's legal boundaries, but inside that we've said, this is how we operate. This is how we vote. This is how we make decisions. And our job, the elders of the church's job, the board of directors' job, is to enforce it, is to just make sure those things are being followed and they're being done properly. And there's things you can and can't put into your bylaws. An important note here is uh, there's a difference between latitude and getting away with stuff. So there is a lot with legal and finance where there's latitude and gray area and I met so-and-so and they do this, but there's a difference between latitude and how you drive and just not getting a ticket, just getting away with it. I would challenge us that our goal is to do what's right and honorable, not just judge it on, well, you know, it's not wrong if we don't get caught. Um, I also realize a, a big part of what we expect is our board of directors or elders. This can be a complex situation in a church, particularly a church plant or you're starting a small ministry. Um, you wouldn't say, we've just gathered, we have people who only recently got saved, and I'm going to make them the elders, and they can fire me. So you do have to think about how you structure the church, uh, whether that's other pastors and elders in the city helping and coming to be on the initial board. If you're being planted out of a church, will they serve as a form of board of directors? Will, over time, as you're raising up local elders in the church? Um, for a lot of things, and I realize with churches there's some, some ways to do this, there's helpful places for people who don't get a paycheck from the church. So the IRS will call that a disinterested person or a person that doesn't have conflict of interest. That could be lay elders, uh, elders from churches that were planted, elders in the community. Um, we do believe, you know, in elder-led churches, so we're not trying to model like a, a nonprofit that has board members scattered across the country, but we need to think about our governance. And I realize this is hard. This hits that issue of are we owners or stewards, that you're going to have a board of directors uh, the, that can fire the lead pastor. And that's scary. But that's our expectation. That's how we live in plurality. That's how we set up our systems in a way um, that it's not us, that we're, we're being stewarded. Um, I'm not personally connected to them. There's a, a website, startchurch.com, and I think for 1000 bucks 
They'll like help you get your state filings, get everything registered, get it done. Um, get help. Figure out who's going to be kind of the business uh, uh, leaders in the church. Can we use a service to help get us organized and then kind of honor it and follow it? I wanted to talk, uh, I know we're, I love this stuff, we're running out of time. Five kind of foundational pieces when you're thinking about setting up your church. To start thinking about now, to really start to go, what does it look like when I have a church? Um, one concept when we're looking at these is the difference between systemic trust and personal trust. It is not enough to trust the person you're working with. So we're a, a, a reasonably sized organization, um, and I have a great relationship with our treasurer, love working with him. I'd let him care for my daughter. I'd give him my ATM card with my PIN number. Um, he can't, on his own, just write a check out of GCM's account. We have systems in place. It takes one person to do step A, one person to do step B, one person to do step C. The system, in effect, doesn't trust him, but I have immense personal trust. So this can get hard, right? So you have someone, you trust them with your life, and you're like, hey, we need two people to count offering. What, don't you trust me? And, you know, it's not about that. But this, so this can be really hard, but you have to start getting your head around, I'm a steward. So this isn't mine, and we need systems that we can trust. We need processes we can trust. It's gonna, you will trust people, so you're not going to be bringing people in that you don't have any belief they're going to do what's right, but that in and of itself isn't a control or a system. Uh, big thing to think about, child worker screening and policy. Number one reason churches end up in court. Number one reason. There was a study, I think Christianity Today did it. They looked 2008 to like 2013. Uh, what were the top five reasons you end up in court? This was number one every single year. So think about this. Again, I trust you, but that is not a system. Do you have background checks? Do you have an assessment process? Are they alone with kids at any point? That's day one. That isn't a, well, when we get big, someday when we have a giant kids program and cool tubes they can slide through. Day one, who's with the kids? This is the number one Number one reason. Uh, if you're curious, in the top five, the next two that are typically up there are insurance liability and personal injury. No, it is not worship style or what version of the Bible you used. It is these legal processes and systems that put churches in court. The other two, property and zoning, right? Systems, processes, do we have our contracts in order? Um, more so than what song did we choose in a particular Sunday or, or what was our next sermon series? This is what landed people in court. As a side note, you don't see uh, financial issues with the IRS because they don't take you to court. They just give you big old fines or take away your license to be a church. So in terms of lawsuits, uh, number one is at the top. Thinking about your insurances. Do you have insurance? Have you really thought about that? What if these are being driven out? If someone falls and breaks their arm at church, they trip over something, a volunteer drops something, somebody gets hurt. Are we covered? Um, what's in place? Uh, gift handling and receding. There's a, a pretty famous court case now where a church uh, had somebody who gave a very large gift, in, I think in the thousands, uh, might have even been over $10,000. They didn't write the receipt right. So they just didn't put the little blurb on the bottom properly. And the IRS said, nope, that's not tax deductible. So that's going to cost the family, whatever, 3000 in tax deductions that they had claimed that they didn't get, plus a penalty et cetera, et cetera. Church said, oh my gosh, we'll fix our receipts, we'll give you a new one. Didn't count because the receipting had to be, uh, the IRS uses the language contemporaneous. You have to get it right. You have to get it right day one. It isn't something that you can say, well, when we're bigger, when we have better financial systems, we'll have proper receipts. If you're going to receive a gift day one, you have to receipt it and document it properly. Um, you can find that language everywhere. There's a lot of resources on it. Um, but how do you handle it? Uh, gift handling, what if someone came to you and says, oh, God's told me I want to give you this plot of land that's been in my family for a generation, right? Do, what do you do? Do you say yes? Do you say no? Do you just say, no, we don't want to do that? It might be a waste dump, and it's going to cost us more money than it's worth. What gifts will you receive? Uh, someone says, I think our church should have this ministry, and I will fund it. Wow, are you ready to take that? Are you ready to give over control of what's happening day to day in the church? So what's your, what's your handling on that? 
And then a another one, we could probably spend half an hour on budgeting, spending, and accounting. So budgeting in a lot of places, and, and in the beginning, it's like, well, we don't know what came in. We'll take the offering and figure out what we can do tomorrow. Um, but budgeting isn't just about predicting what you'll do. It's about assigning resources and then looking back and saying, did we do what we said we were going to do? So did we budget a certain amount for development? Did we budget a certain amount for benevolence? Did we budget a certain amount for uh, home groups? And then did we do it? And if it was more, why? Can we reflect back on how we spent our funds? This, this isn't ours. Uh, lastly, compensation. So this is a big question. Uh, probably one of the best things you can do from day one is be very, very careful about separating your personal finances from the church finances. Be very, very careful. Separate your personal finances from the church finances. This is, I just keep coming back to the lesson of what do we own and what are we stewards of. It's so hard, right? And we know these things are intertwined in the early days. Um, but I have to do a wedding. Finances are tight. I don't have a suit. That makes sense in my mind that the church should buy me a suit so I can do my job as a pastor. Nope. The church can't do that. That's the church's funds. Church can give you a raise. You can talk with people. You can try and address it. But that's you, not the church. Our washing machine broke. It's causing immense stress in the family. I've got to care for my family. Church credit card comes out. Nope. You have to separate yourself from what the church is. Your elders, the people who are, who are going to support you through this, they care about you. They want you to thrive. They don't want you to be uh, pulled apart. And it might seem beforehand, oh, this is obvious. We've seen it. And it's good-natured people. I uh, am addressing a group, and I needed to get a haircut to be a preacher or whatever. Rejected. <laughs> Can't do that. You have to keep separate. What's your finances versus the churches. This is an area of intense interest with the IRS. They call it excess benefit transactions, private inurement. Um, they're less concerned with higher pay than these little side things that happen. Um, it cre creeps up. We say, hey, for accountability, I don't want to travel alone. So I'm going to bring a family member with me or a friend, so I'm not traveling alone. I don't want to be accused of anything. But that's personal. There's tax consequences to that. It's not an expense of the church. If the church wants it to happen, the leadership can find a way to do it, but it's an excess benefit, and it's very easy for those things to bleed when the church plant gets, or the starting ministry gets kind of confused with the individual. Here's the compensation. This is to cover your life, your food, your benefits, what you need to do, and the church has its finances for the church. And if there's need... Trust your elders, trust your process to help step in, um, but keep these things separate. Get external guidance and viewpoints. Church planning is tough. You know, when you go to salary guides, it's always like, well, how big is your church and what's your budget? Zero. We haven't started yet. So um, get advice. We help people, if they're coming through us, set their starting compensation. Um, I think Acts 29 has a spreadsheet to help you pick out, like, what are you starting at? Um, there's kind of some rules of thumb you can look at. What's the average rent in an area and multiply it by a certain amount? Um, you can get advice from other church planners or pastors. Be open with this. Just be open with it. So what do you think I should get paid? What do you think is right for where we're starting? Let me be open about where we are with our finances. Um, start modest. Day one, Again, we want to live with this don't muzzle the ox. We know we want pastors and families and churches to thrive, but it's going to start modest. Again, in the business world, um, when they talk about people starting businesses and we're going to make our own app, uh, a lot of times the advice is, well, how much savings do you have? Because you're not going to get paid for a long time. And that's common, actually, in the business world. So it's going to be slow in the beginning because uh, until the resources are in place to handle a more long-term kind of compensation philosophy. So start modest, get some external advice, um, and uh, get it from outside yourself. Um, one other point on this is it's a little bit of a detail. Again, think about um, benefits and taxes. So how do these things flow through? How does health insurance work? How does your tax situation work? How does parsonage going to work? How are you going to handle all of those things once the church gets started? And you need to get some outside help on it because you want to do it right. You want to do it in the right way. Um, and not get yourself in trouble down the road.
Okay, I went a little long there. Um, questions, thoughts? Go ahead. Yes, so the question was, get, should we recommend getting an accountant or lawyer? Yes. So startchurch.com. Again, I don't know them personally. I know of people who have used them. I think, I don't know, there are a thousand or two to do it for you or get an accountant or attorney to do it for you. Don't file it yourself. Do you know any other resources that are out there as well? I'm sure a quick Google would find some. I know them at a nationwide scale. Um, you might find a, a Christian attorney or accountant in your area. And maybe they'll do it for free, but get someone who has expertise. Um, so locally, most attorneys can do it. Locally, there's a lot of places that'll start and incorporate businesses. Nationally, Start Church is one of the bigger ones. It's a good question. Yeah. Sort of, sort of. So you can form a church in a state under your state guidelines. Um, yes, so it is, that is your state. So the IRS will accept receipts. You still have to have the proper disclosures on it because you're a registered entity of your state. Where you start getting into trouble is we're raising money across state lines. Um, I also think, depending on what state you're in, whether they'll give you a sales use and tax certificate, meaning are you tax exempt when you go shopping for church supplies, um, that they might want you to have your IRS certification. So it gets technical. 501c3 is actually a section of code. And when you talk about getting your 501c3, you're talking about sending paperwork in, and then they send you paperwork, yes, you're good. So in a way, the church is covered because of its state registration, um, but you don't have the guarantee of federal support unless you filed. And that's particularly international work, sending money overseas, interstate commerce, sales use and tax. Um, and each state is a little bit different, so I'd advise get legal help with what does that state do. Long term, it's very good for every state to get it. I mean, for every church to get it. Correct. Not going to do it. And the you know the the government is expecting you're just collecting a local tithe, so that's why they've said you know hey you can operate you can form a church because they're just thinking church people sat down we collected a tithe we gave them a receipt. That's their level of expectation, and once you're going beyond that, they're looking for the 501c3. Okay, other questions? Yeah, sorry. What's the turnaround for the 501c3? I don't know what it is currently. We're actually nine years in going through it right now. So I can tell you. Yeah, I mean, our recommendation would be use someone else then. So whether you have a large church you're being a part of or use a mission agency, um, you'd really have to think about how you're doing that. But yes, otherwise, you'd need that in place first. Any questions? I'd have to see what people advise. Um, again, a lot of people advise don't do it day one. So if you're doing the support raising, go with a mission agency so that you don't have to deal with that. Focus on getting your state registration, getting your state thing set up, 
get your core group, collect a local tithe, get QuickBooks going, and then nine, five years in, six years in, or things start expanding at some point, go for the 501c3. I think Start Church in some of these places, they'll throw it into a package, but it can be overkill in the beginning. But that's why if you're gonna be doing significant fundraising, use someone else that's already prepared to handle it because you don't have a church yet as a church entity that's really ready to handle and receive this and deal with the implications of designated gifts and proper receding and everything that comes with it. Tom is being very humble. He really ought to live in GCM, I guess. I'll be honest. GCM does all of that. You're the bridge for that. Yeah, we're the bridge for that while you're raising funds in the beginning. Yeah. They give you time. They give you time. Mm -hmm. um, with multi-sites, how are they usually set up in terms of separate 501c3s, like Crosspoint, for example? Um, they are usually not. So I know for Crosspoint, it's one entity with multiple congregations. There's pros and cons to both setup. Um, crossing state lines makes that a little more complex in the same way that if you had a business that we want to open a branch in another state, there's complexities there. So um, some places do, there's a kind of three different models. Uh, one is you get an association of churches. It's almost like a mini denomination, and it can get a blanket 501c3 certification. It's harder to get. And then each site is going to be independent but have much higher standards. The typical, if you hear multi-site, we have a site here and a site here. It's one organization, one tax ID number, one 501c3. Assuming they wanted to do that and they've got that in place, yeah. Yep. Question. Uh -huh. Great question. Sure. So we, I, we see it a bunch of different ways. So one way, it depends on what your mission is. So if you're a church that's uh, truly hitting kind of an urban poor center or a large amount of college students, you might say, I'm going to keep raising support to a degree forever because now I can bring on more staff, more ministers, more people working because more of the church budget is available to help other people. Uh, if that isn't the path, if it, this was only for the first three or four years, um, we'd advise contacting, certainly thanking those people, but who's next? Again, maybe... Now we've got enough for the teaching pastor to be paid, but we could use two or three other ministers on the team. Say, thank you. I'd love to introduce you to Johnny, Jane, Steve that want to come on and be ministers. They need to be support-based, and I'd love it if you'd pray about moving your support to them. Um, so that's, you kind of have to, what's your culture? Where are you going? How do you want to handle it? But you want, need to be honest. So if people are supporting you and you've been communicating, we need this, and you don't, you need to be truthful and say, thank you, we're ready to transition off. If the church strategy is, no, you still need it, then you could continue you know, doing it moving forward. Quick question. Uh -huh. How many of these nine things that you gave us did GCM do? Uh, have, uh, we don't do the legal setup and the running of the local church. So... Um, we don't run your church finances, so we don't set up your reimbursement plan. So, you know, the church has to say, here's what we believe about meals, and here's what we believe about flights, and here's what we do for this, that, and the other thing. We don't do that for your church. So on the missionary side, the pay, employment, taxes, fundraising side, we do all of that. Compensation side, we do all of it. You're looking for something like that? I've already answered <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. It's a loaded question. Yeah. It's a loaded question. He's just being really humble about no. what the organization does. Yeah. So it's a great organization to get a part of. Yeah. You're yeah, on the... On the What's the name of that? I think I met her. What's the name of the ministry? It's not a ministry. It's just her business. Oh, I thought she... Okay, great. I think I met her. 
Other questions? We can wrap up. I realize we're a little past one. Lunch is beckoning. Uh-huh. Yeah, their group exemption. Yep. That's a lot. I mean, you should talk to the, the whoever the national group is, but I'm sure it is. Good. Well, thanks. Hey, guys, be back here at uh, 2.30. Thank you, Tom. That was excellent, man. Excellent.